Get your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 talks about a pure heart. Most of us have showered in the last week, I hope, and uh, we clean the outside of our bodies, but what we come here on Sunday mornings is to clean the inside of the cup. I've been some places before where people hang their coffee mugs up, and they just use them every time they show up, and they don't, they get kind of scruffy on the inside. And this is why weekly church going is so important, to clean out the inside of the, the cup rather than just showering the outside. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're starting a new sermon series on the book of 1 Timothy. And I want to start by talking about when you were in school and you went to math class. How many of you are good at math? Raise your hands if you're good at math. Okay, you're all sitting on this side of the church, which is pretty weird. But uh, except for a couple of you. How many people just think math is of the devil? Uh, raise your hands. Raise your hands. You go, to any, you go to any grade school or junior high classroom, and you will hear this argument. Well, teacher, I gave you the answers. Yeah, but I want to see your work. I want to see how you got there. Remember the answers were in the back of the book sometimes? Now, you can memorize the answers in the Bible, but we don't do the work. And we're going to talk today about how Paul is all about, the Apostle Paul who writes these letters, is all about doing the work. But we want to just take the answers he comes up with and apply them to our lives without doing the work he did. And we miss the point of all of his books. So we're going to look at First Timothy, named after Timothy. No, just really. Uh, Tim over here Ed, was named after Timothy. Timothy was a Greek. He was not a Jew. Timothy is a Greek name, which means uh, someone who honors God. Theos is God. Timo is uh, Timao is, uh, is to honor, someone who honors God, a God-honoring person, a young man. And Paul, who was sort of the top of the food chain apostle in the New Testament, was writing to his apprentice, Timothy. We're going to talk about uh, how that goes together today. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at 1 Timothy. So if you open your Bibles and look to 1 Timothy, get a feel for the book. It's toward the end of, toward the, end of uh, the Bible. And it's very small. It's a letter. And it's Paul encouraging Timothy. And we're going to talk about how we can learn to do the work that Paul is doing and Timothy is doing and not just come up with the answers, but actually do the spiritual work that is required. I've always admired people who are in recovery in 12-step groups because they actually do some spiritual work. They go through the 12 steps and actually show their work. And they don't just have a result. And that's why it works so well. And I just uh, admire everybody who does that. And we're going to talk about how we do spiritual work to keep the insides of our cups clean so that we can have a pure heart and a clean conscience. When I was living in Germany, they said, Ein gutes Gewissen, ein sanft Ruhekissen, a, a, a good conscience makes for a soft pillow at night. And having that clean inside of your cup helps you to sleep at night. And you've heard the phrase, how can that person sleep at night doing these things? Who, who here gets emails from people saying, uh, um, we've just found $300,000 somewhere in Canada, and this is all for you. And this is all a scam. There's scams everywhere now. We run into scams almost every day. And I always ask myself, how can these people sleep at night if that's how you make a living? Just deceiving people. 
So we're going to talk about how to do that, how to do the work, how to keep the inside of the cup clean. I want to say a couple things, and I'd invite you to take some notes today. You don't have to take notes, but those who take notes will be first in the kingdom of heaven. So just uh, keep that in mind. It's just a good thing to do. People don't write books of the Bible. Paul didn't wake up in the morning saying, I think I'll write 1 Timothy today. No, he's, he's responding to a situation. People write books of the Bible because they needed to be written. There was an issue that needed to be dealt with. And we're the most faithful to the Bible when we understand what that was so that we can do the kind of work that Paul and Timothy were doing to show our work, to show that we're actually in a relationship with God, working these things out. And there are no easy, quick answers in life. People would love to think that the Bible is an answer book. We'll just look up all the answers, we'll memorize the answers, and then we'll apply them to our lives. But that's just legalism. That's just following rules. What we want to do is have a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit that guides us through life where we actually do spiritual work. And that's what prayer is about. It's doing spiritual work. I had a pastor in Pittsburgh once said, He was asked, how do you define prayer? He says, well, the Lord and I, we go places and we do things. We work on things. And there's something to that. Not just looking for answers. It's looking for the process involved in life. And Paul was really good at process. So people don't write books of the Bible for no reason. Paul had a reason for writing. We're going to talk about that. And you can tell what's going wrong and needs to be corrected by what topics are coming up. If you read a historical book, from the Middle Ages, and it said, from now on, at the castle, people will eat with utensils. What does that tell you? They're not eating with utensils. When, when Paul says that uh, an elder of the church shall have only one wife, what is that telling you? Exactly. Uh, you don't just throw that in there for no reason. Uh, things are put in there to correct what is going on. So you can tell exactly what's happening with 1 Timothy by what gets mentioned, what topics come up, what is being addressed, what problems, what issues, because we face problems and issues. You and I face financial problems, relational problems, work and vocational problems, health problems, fitness problems. We face all of those kind of things. Are we willing to do the kind of work that Paul did to work these these things out with the Lord to come up with answers that would please the Lord? And that's why you're here today, because you guys are into that, and so am I. We want to draw from the Bible all the wisdom that we can. And basically, Timothy is a smoke jumper. Who knows what a smoke jumper is? The people that parachute into forest fires and and do what they do. Basically, Paul is running a whole bunch of churches remotely. So you think this remote church is a new thing. It wasn't. Paul was using the outstanding postal service of the Roman Empire. You could get a letter anywhere in about four or five days, which is pretty amazing. And he was using this, it was like their internet. It was, they were able to do all kinds of stuff. He was able to manage a whole bunch of churches at once, remotely, kind of like we do. Hello, daughter church in, in, uh, in Arizona, and also our daughter church up in Alberta. And those of you folks starting a church in Farmington, we're glad to see you. We're doing the same thing. So we're doing what Paul was doing. And by the way, this church is larger. This church here is larger than any of the churches that Paul was working with. He's working with basically churches that fit around a table. When we hang out with the Brees family here, we they have a bunch of people that hang out and they eat a lot. What do you go? Hobble in, gobble up. How does that go? Hobble in, gobble up, and wobble out. They they eat a lot. And so 
but that's that's kind of what the Christian church looked like back then. People got together and they would uh, they would read from the word, they would teach, they would exercise spiritual gifts, and they would eat and they would go do stuff. So when Paul's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he's writing to uh, a table group basically that was doing these things. So he's sending Timothy in to do some smoke jumping in Ephesus. Now, even if you are a thrill seeker, smoke jumping is scary. Timothy is not, is not, does not have the temperament of a smoke jumper. He's a timid person, a little bit on the sickly side, and needs a lot of encouragement. And Paul understands that when you've got an apprentice that's a little on the weak side, it's better to work with that one than to look for another one. Because you learn that in HR, it's better to work with the people you've got because you never know what you're going to get. And who thinks there's a little bit of shortage right now out there in the workplace? So there's a whole bunch of that because people have let go too many people and haven't worked with people. You've got to work with people to bring them along. I went off to HR training for my church in Minnesota because we went from seven employees to 105 in a, just a period of a few years. And they asked me to go to HR school and learn about HR. And that was one of the main things I learned. Work with the people you have and develop them. The idea that that perfect person is out there and you need to just switch them out all the time is just not necessarily the case. So anyways, Paul sends Timothy, who is rather timid, into Ephesus. Now, Ephesus Ephesus is an intimidating place and an intimidating church. Ephesus was a first world city. There were times in history when Ephesus was the biggest city in the world. At the point of this writing, it was about the size of Long Beach. It was a major city, probably the second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. And they had, it was a first world city, life expectancy was 70. They had hot and cold running water, nursing homes and pension plants. This was not a backwater with people running around in bathrobes in the desert. This, this was a major city, a very sophisticated city. And it was a Greek-speaking city, part of the Greek world. And we know that the Greeks were very sophisticated <laughs> philosophers, dramatists, and writers. So intellectually, economically, and otherwise, this was a major city, a really big deal. And the goddess of the city was Artemis of the Ephesians, known to us as Diana, because that's what the Latin Roman people called her. But Artemis was, get this, a perpetual virgin goddess, perpetual virgin goddess, who was the goddess of the hunt and also the goddess of fertility. And all of her priests were female. The entire city, the entire religious life of the city was matriarchal, not patriarchal. So it's sort of the exact opposite of the Roman Catholic Church, where all the power positions are men. It's all women, which is one of the things we're going to talk about next week, which is why he corrected what was going on where women were in charge of everything spiritual and how that cuts, that shuts men out. So we're going to talk about that in chapter two. See where the historical thing is a real important way of, it's important to understand what's going on. You have to understand the context of what's happening. The temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, we call it, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you ever had that grade school thing where you looked at the seven wonders of the world with the, the Colossus of Rhodes and the Library of Alexandria and that kind of stuff, the Temple of Diana was one of them. And it was at the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Artemis, where Paul started a riot by saying, well, this is just idolatry. And 
5,000 people got together and screamed themselves hoarse because this was, this was a major religion with a major temple with a major everything, and the whole city revolved around it. He was questioning the very foundation of the city. And this is a big, impressive city. Who thinks there's powers that be that would come against that? A lot of them. And so Paul actually got uh, shuttled out of town by his friends. Paul wanted to fight them, but his friends said, to keep you alive, let's get you out of here and pretty much smuggled him out of Ephesus and told him not to come back for a while till things calmed down. So this is the town that uh, Paul sends Timothy into to do some smoke jumping. Isn't, uh, I'm sure Timothy is thinking, thanks a lot. You're sending me into Ephesus. Great. Uh, this is not going to be... Ephesus was a dysfunctional city in a lot of ways because of the spiritual makeup. Corinth was a dysfunctional church. That's a whole other thing. We'll talk about that sometime. But back to Ephesus... One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was this temple, and Paul had come against the temple. And so he's sending in his apprentice to kind of clean things up, which he didn't probably appreciate, but he probably did. Also, later on, the apostle John became the main guy here. And this is the same John at the cross where Jesus said, John, take care of mom, and mom, this is your son. And so... We know that John ended up around Ephesus because that's where he wrote Revelation from, an island just outside of there. And he wrote his last letters from there, probably wrote his gospel from there, and led a church called the Community of the Beloved Disciple. So Mary was a big deal in Ephesus because he took Mary with him to take care of her. You see the Mary-Artemis connection starting to kind of come together here. And how they're saying, well, yeah, you've got this virgin goddess. Well, we've got a real virgin here who gave birth to the real God. And so there's, there's stuff that goes on which has perpetuated itself over time. So that's Ephesus. How many of you would want to be sent in on a smoke-jumping job to Ephesus to take care of these things? And the church was full of bossy women and opinionated men. We Americans are known, we American men are known for being extremely opinionated. You can go get your oil changed. We talked about this in the, in the Bible study this morning. You can go get your oil changed at Jiffy Lube, and you can ask the guy there in the pit, uh, what do you think of uh, the People's Republic of China and their incursions into Taiwanese airspace last week? And he'll have no idea what you're talking about, but he'll have an opinion because he's an American guy. Uh, and and Believe me, you go abroad, because my wife is from Holland, you go abroad, and we are known, American men, for having an opinion on everything, whether or not we know anything about it. And I would also agree that that's probably me, because I'm an American guy, and we've got opinions. So he's smoke-jumping into a church with opinionated men and bossy women, and he's supposed to tidy this up. Oh, by the way, he's younger than all of them. Great. I still remember when I was a pastor when I was 29. And they sent me smoke jumping into Washington State, into a church that had failed. And I said, why don't you kind of clean this up? Oh, my goodness, bossy women and, and opinionated men. It was, it was quite a deal. And it took a couple years off my life. I was in the ER a couple times just from, and I'm pretty assertive compared to Timothy. So I can imagine what Timothy was going through when he got sent to Ephesus. Isn't it interesting how this makes the story come alive a little bit more? This is not just... Oh, Paul, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to get up in the morning and just write this book, and maybe it'll be in the Bible someday. No, he's, he's dealing with real stuff, and he's showing his work. And that's what he's encouraging us to do, to learn how to do the same kind of stuff that Paul is doing. So what were 
the fires that Timothy had to put out. Uh, Timothy, I'm going to send you smoke jumping into Ephesus, Paul says. Watch out for the speculative teachers, the men who are opinionated and have got all kinds of theological and political opinions about everything. Sounds like America today. Women, there's a huge power imbalance. The women in the church in Ephesus assumed that they'd be in charge. Why? Because all the women in church, all the women in Ephesus were in charge of the spiritual life of the city. That was what they did. And they said, well, you know, if we're going to become Christians, we're still going to be in charge, aren't we? So there's that kind of thing going on. Widows. The Christian church early on took care of widows. Here's the problem. Most of the widows in Ephesus were rich because most of the people in Ephesus were rich. It's a wealthy city. And you get all these wealthy widows showing up saying, I'd kind of like to get some money from the church, and they're dressed better than everyone else. And he's saying, uh, no. Let's make sure that only women over 60 and ones who really need it, you know, the poor grandmas living in Florida in trailer parks eating cat food, let's take care of those people. Let's not, let's not take care of the rich widows just because they're widows. So he's dealing with they've got the influx of widows because all these rich widows in town are finding, oh, Christians take care of widows. Let's show up there and see if we can get some money. And so he has to deal with that. So Timothy has to deal with rich widows, which is no fun. Number four, conspicuous consumption. Super wealthy city. Super wealthy city. And people are showing up and showing off. And this was a real problem in the church. Not a problem in the church in California. Uh, we show up in flip-flops to church and the whole thing can speak. This is not one of our issues per se here. In is anybody here showing off financially? I don't think so. Wendy? Just kidding. <laughs> Number five, politics. He's urging the Ephesian church to stay out of the meat grinder of Ephesian politics. The city's running well. Don't show yourselves as being some kind of revolutionary group. Don't show yourselves as being people who want to take down the government because the government of Ephesus, it's the, one, the most one or two or three prosperous cities in the world. They're doing a good job of, of running things. Don't, don't try to bring down the government. So he says, pray for the leaders. Pray for those in authority. Let's not become a revolutionary group. That's work that will never get done here. It'll distract us. Who thinks politics can be distracting sometimes? In two seconds. And uh, also, he's telling servants, and slaves back then were not like slaves in America. Slaves in America were treated like cattle. Slaves in the Roman Empire had quite a bit of status. It's a whole different thing. They often were some of the most educated, the teachers, the musicians. They, they were people who were different than slaves in North America who were treated like livestock. It's a whole different thing. So these servants, slaves, same word in Greek. These, uh, these slaves had it really good in Ephesus. And, says, and Paul's saying, guys, you have it better here than rich people in small towns, so let's, let's not get uppity with people right now. Do you see where... The context makes a lot of difference in how you show your work. So let's look at this here with Ephesus. This is super important. We're going to shift gears. Let's shift gears. Put in the clutch. Let's shift gears for a second. My goal as a tour guide of the Bible is to help you to get the most out of the Bible possible. 
I don't want to draw you to my teaching. I want to point you to what's in the Bible. Wendy and I took a bus tour through communist East Germany years and years ago, back before the wall came down. And the tour guide had broken English, and she kept saying, look at, look at, smokestacks, industry, look at. You know, she's always pointing at stuff. And we still say that to this day in the car. Look at, Wendy. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful eagle flying over here. Look at. And so basically that's my job is to point you to the Bible, get you into the Bible in a deeper way than you would have been into the Bible. I don't care about my teaching. I'm not impressed with my theology. I want to get you into the word. That's my goal because I, I am sort of obsessed with the Bible. I really like hanging out there and showing other people what I've found. This is super important because people misread the letters of Paul because they don't get this. John understands this. He went to Bible college, and some of the rest of you might understand this. But there are different genres, and a genre is a type of literature. And the Bible is like a library, and it's got different genres in it. The foundation is called the Torah, and it's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus would say that that's the foundation. He would say the law and the prophets. It's called the law by us in English, but it's the Torah or the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it. That's the foundation, this foundational story. And the main storyline is what? Freedom from Egypt and setting up a new society. That's the storyline of the Torah. History books. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, uh, the book of Acts, Ezra, ne Nehemiah, those are books that narrate what is going on. And those books are historical records, and they are the best historical records we have from that period of any kind. Without them, we'd have no idea what was happening in that part of the Middle East during that era. Prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, people who addressed the problems that were going on at the time with the word of the Lord. They were not fortune tellers. Let me say that again. They were not fortune tellers predicting the future. What they had to say had future implications, implications for us today. But they were forth tellers, not foretellers. Let me say that again. They were forth tellers, not foretellers. Prophetes, prophet, the people who speak forth, literally. That's what the word prophet means. And they spoke for God. And how did they start every paragraph? Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says about what's going on. I'm helping translate the book of Amos right now for the Passion Translation. Just started this week. And it's, there's lots of stuff in the prophets where it says, thus says the Lord. Amos is ticked off about what's going on. And the Lord gives him the words to say about what's happening. We just went through Lamentations, which is both prophet and poetry. He's got that speaking for the Lord thing. Thus says the Lord. Music. The book of Psalms is a songbook. It is a hymn book. I, one of the things I'm looking forward to most in the afterlife, in the kingdom, is hearing what the tunes were to the Psalms. We've lost them. All we have is the words. We've got the lyrics, but we don't have the music. And at the time of Jesus, they all still knew the, the music. I think it's one of the songs of Zion. They would know what those songs were. And some of the songs say, oh, 
this is to the tune of deer in the woods or something like that. And they would all know what that means. Kind of like us saying, well, this is to the tune of uh, you lost that love and feeling or something. You know, it's just so. So but we don't we don't know. We don't know what the tunes were. In fact, music was first written down by in the year a thousand or so by um, a, a woman who, who put all of this stuff together and taught us how to write notes. And we didn't even know that before. So anyways, there's music. The Song of Solomon is another one. There's gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And a, a gospel is a certain kind of genre. It's a biography of Jesus that has a message to it. And it has a, a viewpoint as to what's going on. Midrash. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today. It's a word you're probably not familiar with. Midrash is what rabbis do with the Torah. They take the Torah and they apply the truths of the Torah to the local situation, and then they argue about it. There's a joke that says you have two rabbis, you've got three opinions. You know, There's just a lot of hashing out. It's a hashing out of this for... The messy world we live in, taking the Torah and applying those truths and the God of the Torah to our situation. Paul is writing pure Midrash. Everybody, every Jewish rabbi in the world, if they were to read Paul, which they generally don't, if they were to read Paul, they say, he's one of us, he's a rabbi doing Midrash. He's applying to local situations and what were the local situations there? The local situations were the men and women problems, the widows problems, the politics, the, the kind of things they were dealing with. So he's applying the gospel to these situations, which is called midrash. You apply something to specific situations. And that's what I do every time I do pre-marriage counseling with people or uh Praying with people or shepherding them or discipling them. That's what I do. I'm doing midrash. I'm applying the truths of the Christian faith to this new couple that's going to get married. That's what midrash is. And Paul's letters are pure midrash. They are not Torah. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. This is a huge insight. Apocalyptic writing. Daniel. Revelation and other little parts of the Bible. There's some places in the Gospels that are apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is highly symbolic language meant to address generally oppression. Who thinks it's possible that Christians might be persecuted in the future in North America? Who thinks it's happening right now in a lot of the world? It's happening right now. And apocalyptic is written for those situations where the Christians are under or the people of faith in the book of Daniel, are under extreme pressure. And extreme pressure brings about apocalyptic. And the main message of apocalyptic is hang in there. Be faithful to the end. The book of Revelation says over and over, those who are faithful to the end will be saved. The lamb will defeat this other stuff. The lamb will defeat the beast. So apocalyptic is a whole different kind of genre. And you don't read apocalyptic like you read the Psalms. And you don't read, it's important to know what kind of genre you're reading because then you know what to expect of it. For instance, the Psalms are not going to be theological treatises. 
I hang around with pastors and it bothers me sometimes because pastors often are picky about music. What do I mean by that? They find theological flaws in every single song. We can't sing that song. We just sang, you give and take away. Does the Lord really take away? I don't know. We better explore that. Folks, songs are not theological treatises. They are art. And they're not going to be as precise as a theological treatise. They're not Torah. It's music. It's art. And it's supposed to point towards God. It doesn't fully. Sure, we want songs to be theologically accurate, but I could... I went to school a long time. I can find a theological flaw with every single song we sing. And it's just pickiness. If you do that with your spouse, you won't be married long. It's just don't do that. You know, you just that sort of picky, hen-picky kind of way of looking at everything. Uh, and then there's poetry. The Book of Lamentations is a sublime poem, and there's other ones in the Bible. Fantastically crafted Hebrew poetry. And once again, poetry is not, it's not engineering. It's different. It's a different language. I've seen Tom's specs for the new door at his nesting place. That's not poetry. It's beautiful, but it's beautiful in a different way. So, you learn nothing else today. Paul's letters are midrash. And he's showing his work, and what he's encouraging us to do is to do this, use the same methods, not to get the same answers and force them on our situation. Do you understand the difference? Because Paul is not getting rid of the Torah so he can create Torah 2.0. Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the Torah. The Torah is good, he says. The Bible is good. The law is good as a guardian. But as soon as you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is to lead you in all truth. We're supposed to graduate from the law into the Life in the Spirit. That's the whole message of Galatians. That's the whole message of Romans. The whole message. The main message. Talks about the letter of the law killing and the Spirit making alive. So to say that Paul is just coming up with a new Torah with new rules to follow is missing the whole point of Paul. Paul is using, Paul is doing good midrash. He's doing great midrash. One of the greatest rabbis of all time doing midrash. And what we're supposed to be doing is following his way of applying, not just finding the answers in the back of the book and applying them to our situation, which would be a misreading of the Bible. So we have to look at that. To read Paul as as Torah 2.0 and not as Midrash is to misread Paul. Because we're not facing the same situations he's facing. He's coming up with answers that fit his situation. Who thinks Ephesus is a wee bit different than Orange County? There's some similarities and some really big differences. Do we have lots of widows breaking down the door here trying to get money? Uh, no, we don't. We have conspicuous consumption here as we're dressed, and no. Uh, we're not dealing with some of those issues. But we can use the same principles he uses to apply to our issues. And we've got them, by the way. The problem with Timothy is he's kind of a wimp. He's, the, he's a young guy, but the opposite of King David. King David... Picture skinny, skinny, uh, skinny skateboard kid saying, I can take that Goliath guy. I take him out right now. He's too big to miss. Give me, a, give me a slingshot. Really confident junior high kid. Timothy's a young man. He's the opposite. How do we know he's the opposite? Because Paul is always telling him not to be that way. 
If you tell someone to stand up and stick up for yourself 400 times, you start to get the idea that he's not doing it. You can tell what's not happening by what's being written in the book. Be firm, Timothy. Stand up. You know, Go do these things. You can do it. Come on. Buck up a little bit. So, in he goes. So we start in chapter 1 with the problem with men. He goes after men first, then he goes after women. And he's going after men, and this is where our situation is pretty similar to his. We have a lot of opinionated men in America. They had a lot of opinionated men back then. And I'm amazed because we're now up to 380 subscribers to our daily Bible passages on YouTube. And the farther out we go, the more we start to attract these weird men that write back the weirdest stuff. You're only at the third level of angel whatever, and at the fourth level, this is happening, and the word angel was invented by Satan. I got that one last week. I'm thinking, oh boy. Uh, And they say it with such confidence. This doesn't happen in women's Bible studies. This is a, this is a male problem. We, we have a tendency to go after these things with great confidence. We put on our big boy voice and we say, I think that, uh, that uh, Obama was mentioned uh, in, uh, in the writings of Ezekiel. And you can just tell because he's talking about birds. You know, it, and, and they'll say it with, with such confidence. And they'll say, well, this, we just have to know that that's Russia, even though Russia isn't in the Bible. And I say to these people, Show me in the word where it says that. Well, you just have to imply it from the word. I'm going, well, uh, in other words, you're just making it up. God told me. Well, has he confirmed it with anybody? I always love the hashtag not in the Bible. I've never gotten more pushback than pointing out a couple weeks ago a dozen things that aren't in the Bible that everyone thinks is in the Bible. And people just, and it's all men, and they get all upset. Hey, it's two in the Bible. And they just go on and on and on. It's just not there but they've got opinions. And it's the same thing. We really, we men have to watch that. Are our opinions just skyscrapers built on sand? Often they are. Folks, this is what men come up with for the afterlife. Biblical prophecy. Uh, it, we come up with shoots and ladders with all kinds of different things, and it's just insane. Well, that's the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. I'll tell people, Show me the word antichrist in the book of Revelation. It's not there. And when John uses that elsewhere, by the way, John knows how to use the word. He used it in his letters, but he doesn't use it in Revelation. That should tell you something. And he's using it in his letters. He often uses it in plural, which tells me that anybody can be a antichrist. Hitler was an antichrist, no question. We've had lots of them. We'll probably have a lot more. They show up a lot, people who put themselves in the place of Christ. It's very common. And they continue to, well, the Antichrist is going to show up in Revelation. Well, okay, show me the Antichrist in Revelation. It's the beast. How do you know that? Well, you can just tell. Uh, Okay, good. Well, the rapture happens in chapter 4 of Revelation. Well, show me that. It's not there either. There's all kinds of not-in-the-Bible stuff. The people create these skyscrapers of theology on sand that are just weird. And we go along with it. And we think, okay, that's the, they're speaking so confidently, they must be right. Who here has talked with kind of a weird Christian who's got all kinds of... I keep running into guys who've retranslated the Bible who show up and say, I've retranslated the Bible the right way. And they did, like, the whole New Testament. 
And I'm thinking, first of all, you don't even read Greek, and you did this on your own. Yeah, but God told me. Well, that's what happened with Joseph Smith and the Mormons, too. God told him, you know, and, and he wrote this thing down. So it's just you and God with no... Folks, if it's not in the Bible, God doesn't have it in the Bible for a reason. He leaves things out for a reason. There's reasons for that. And here's Paul coming down on the men. And in chapter 2, he'll come down on the women. So women, you'll get yours next week. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Do some smoke jumping so that you may command, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. And he's talking about these kind of guys. And Timothy's going, I don't want to do that. But he's being sent in to do this, even though it's not his temperament. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The whole shoots and ladders thing that we just looked at. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith advancing God's work. A lot of that speculation doesn't advance God's work. There's more men out there interested in Bible studies, men in Bible studies, more interested in winning arguments on arcane points of the Bible than reaching their neighbors who are going to hell because they don't know Jesus. Think about it. I mean, they're way less passionate about unsaved people than they are about being right about a certain thing. And I have to confess, you women may know that this may happen in your circles too, but when no women are around, we go crazy with this stuff. The goal, this is the key verse of the whole chapter. The goal of this command, my command to you, Timothy, why I'm telling you this, is love, which comes from a pure heart, a cup washed on the inside. The whole goal of the Christian faith is to wash your cup on the inside, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, learning how to live with integrity. It's not about external stuff. It's about internal stuff. The Christian faith is an inside job. It has out exterior implications. We need to act in such a way when our insides are clean. We can do certain things. But if we start acting with dirty inside cups, it's just ugly. Who thinks there's been Christians who've been unattractive in the last couple of years by spouting off all kinds of stuff that they don't know that well? And out it comes. Oh, the vaccination is the mark of the beast. Oh, good. Show me that in the Bible. I'm not saying it's good or bad to do that. That's not the point. It's not in the Bible. Oh, but... I, I, I can see you because in Spanish, you put the letters and the numbers together and it's 666 or something. And I'm just thinking, okay, great. Uh, it's just the craziest stuff. We have to stay away from speculations and keep the main thing the main thing. Paul is saying, clean the inside of the cup and then you'll know how to interact with people. You'll interact with courage, with faith, and with integrity. If I'm having a bad day, I've had some challenges raising my son. If I'm having a bad day, my conversations don't go well with him because the inside of my cup is dirty. When the inside of my cup is clean, all of a sudden we have good interactions. And it happens in all of our relationships. We may wonder, how come my relationships all stink? Well, maybe it's because we're worried about cleaning the outside and you know, getting our hair done nice and wearing the right clothes, but what about the inside? Because that's what comes out in our conversations is the inside. 
Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. And if you don't believe there's meaningless talk within the Christian faith, go to Twitter and post on any opinion, and you'll get 400 men with 400 opinions all sounding very confident in their little tweets to each other. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't, do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And I get these guys who say, you know, if you really understood Hebrew or Greek, you would, yeah, okay, we won't even start with that. The main thing, according to Paul, and he wants Timothy to get people back on the main thing track, is what? Love, pure conscience, sincere faith. And do some midrash with that. And so what would midrash be for our church? We're not dealing with the same stuff Ephesus was dealing with. Here's the things I thought of that we're dealing with as a church. Responding to the pandemic. That's been a challenge for the church. Do we open? Do we close? What do we do? How much do we honor the authorities in town? How much do we, do we honor our landlords who've got certain ways of looking at this? How do we work through this? How do we reach the people who are afraid to come because of the pandemic or the now the, the, the Delta variant? What do we do as a church? How do we respond in this time of crisis? How do we, this, is, this is what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with widows and other stuff. We're dealing with this. The political climate in America, which is poisonous right now, toxic, absolutely toxic. You have to be really careful how much of it you watch because it's extremely depressing. And a lot of it is really just disaster porn, which, which we gobble up. And it's just as dangerous, by the way, as sexual porn, if not more. We're attracted to disasters. Facility insecurity. This has been a problem with our church since the very beginning. We've always been dealing with insecurity about where can we meet. We hope the Methodists thrive because if they don't, if they have to sell the land or something, we'd have to look for something else. And this is our what venue? Fifth. This is our fifth venue. So facility insecurity has been a real challenge for us. So how do we follow the Lord and, and follow his guidance and work on that? Lack of evangelistic urgency. Some of this is going to hurt a little bit. I don't think our church is known for evangelistic urgency. I don't think we have a sense of urgency for the lost people in our circles. Uh, I know Stan does. Uh, Stan has an incredible... Stan, I wish what you had was contagious because you have evangelistic urgency. And some, and some of the rest of you do a little bit too. But the lack of it is a real problem here. We don't really... I don't think we see it as that important that we reach people who are lost. Because after all, it's hard in America. Nobody wants to hear about Christian stuff anyway. So let's just be comfortable and let's have our club. Who thinks that's an issue for a lot of churches in America right now? We've lost our sense of evangelistic urgency. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an issue here. Generational balance, making sure that we have generational balance in the church. Our church has boomers, a lot of Gen Xers, a lot less millennials and Gen Z. We need to be a multi-generational church. We need to work on that. We need to raise up leaders who are in different generations. Generational balance is healthy. And by the way, 
if you're in a group with three generations, your joy, psychologists have showed us this, your joy level goes up. If you're with three generations or more in a, in a gathering, your joy level will go up. And it's super important to maintain. The church is the only multi-generational organization out there. We tend to stratify people by age. Remember in grade school, you put, or junior high, you put a thousand junior high kids on one piece of property and you wonder why it goes wrong. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, there's no sense of multi-generational whatever. So we have to continue to be really active about multi-generational balance. Otherwise, we'll just age. We started out when this church was called Robinwood as the young church. And we've aged for 15 years. And we need to continue to bring in younger leaders and, like Timothy, train them and, and apprentice them and disciple them. And that's hard work. We'd rather not do that because we already have it figured out. The other one is the consumer mentality in California, in churches. Well, I want to go to this church because their music's better. Or I want to go to church this church because they've got a special program for me. Um, or I'm just not getting fed. Or, or uh, the church isn't meeting my needs. Who thinks Californians are at the top of the food chain for consumer mentality? There is no place on earth more than Orange County where consumer mentality is, is rampant is here. So these are the problems we're dealing with as opposed to the problems that Paul was dealing with. So to look for, to Paul for answers to our problems doesn't make any sense. But to use his method of midrash to apply love, clean conscience, and those kind of things to our situation and the leading of the Holy Spirit, do it the way he was doing it. Not just about getting the answers to the back of the book, but do Christianity the way he was doing it, in a spirit-led, love-based way, and apply it to your situation, and trust the Holy Spirit, and know, by the way, that he wasn't putting together a new Torah. So when we read Paul, it's not about applying his, situation, his solutions. It's about analyzing our issues, being honest about them, and applying his method. And his method was to use the guidance of the Holy Spirit, keeping the main thing the main thing, having evangelistic urgency, and working out the relationships within the church so that we can reach other people, so that we can be more attractive to people on the outside. That's his method. What's the denomination that rents to us? One of the funniest things I ask Methodists is, what's your method? And, <laughs> They used to have one. It's, they had a method. It was called class meetings, which are small group meetings. And they would always start with, how are things with your soul? And they would ask each person, and they'd go around, and they would do that. That was their method. Wesley came up with that. They've kind of forgotten that over the years. But uh, Paul's method was leading of the Holy Spirit, focusing on the main thing, and applying those things to the Christian community. So what we want to do is not mimic his answers, but mimic his method. Now, when his situations line up with ours, we want to follow his answers. But who thinks that he's got an answer for the consumerism here? He probably doesn't. So we have to apply his method to that. There was no lack of evangelistic urgency back then. He didn't have to deal with that, but we've got to deal with that. So how do we apply his method to that? So my question for you is, are you going in? Are you going into the community? We are smoke jumping here in Orange County and Long Beach. And uh, it's a tough environment. 
And it'd be really easy to be very passive about our faith when we're out in public and not to engage the people as Paul is asking us to engage the challenges. Who thinks it's easier just not to face issues and just kind of let them slide and just watch Netflix and eat donuts? It's, it's, it's much easier to do that and just put it all on hold. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Going back to 1 Timothy 1.5, we're going to read this out loud from the screen. One, two, three. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So next week, we're going to talk about, now that we men have been blasted by Paul, we're going to talk about women and some of the challenges that come from the reading of Paul and most of the challenges from 1 Timothy 2, and I'd like you to read it ahead of time, come from treating 1 Timothy 2 as Torah, not as Midrash. And that's a real problem in the church to, the, to this day. To this day. And we have to make sure that we read it the way it's tended to be read. So let's pray, let's stand, and uh, let's pray for what the Lord might want to show us. Lord, uh, we go smoke jumping here, and we need to know that you're going to go with us. If I was jumping out of a plane, Lord, I wouldn't want to be the only one jumping out of a plane. We want you to be jumping with us. I'm picturing a bunch of people in a plane, Lord, and they've all got uh, parachutes except for each of us, and we jump off with no parachute, and we're trusting you to jump after us and come diving after us and grab us and hold on to us and uh, use your parachute to bring us safely to the ground. And Lord, we there's, just, there's so many shortcuts. We want to find shortcuts in the Bible rather than do the work and show our work. But I pray, Lord, that uh, today you would clean out. Uh, I just picture our coffee cup being all brown on the inside. And you've got a steel wool pad, and you want to clean it out, Lord, and uh, with hot water and soap. Give us pure hearts, Lord. Give us, uh, give us a clean conscience. And Lord, help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us not to take the shortcut of looking for easy, cheap answers in the Bible, but to go after these things like Paul did. And Lord, uh, we can all relate to Timothy here because we're, we're timid. We're timid about sharing our faith in public, Lord. Uh, when people ask me what I do, I try to talk around it sometimes because I don't want to come across as religious or something. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we would, uh, like Timothy, re re receive encouragement to go after these things and to stand up tall with a good conscience and make a difference in our communities, in our church. Lord, help us to look at the things in our church which uh, are our issues and help us never to use the Bible and the issues in Ephesus, the issues in Corinth to distract us from what we need to work on, our evangelistic urgency, our sense of uh, facility insecurity, our sense of consumerism in our area. Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would continue to bless us with your word, Lord, as we go through, as we journey through the book of 1 Timothy. We give you thanks, Lord, that you found it within your wisdom to make sure this letter ended up in, in your Bible, in the word, because we have so much to learn in the five weeks to come. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good, you are good. You're 
just to hold your hands up and uh, hold them open, receive a blessing. Lord, uh, you're never going to let us down because you're good. And you want to go with us, Lord, as we go smoke jumping into this crazy world this week. And some of us face really big challenges. And Lord, we know that you're jumping with us. Like Timothy, we're a little timid sometimes. And sometimes, Lord, we don't uh, take the time to clean the inside of the cup. Pray that you continue to cleanse and clean us from the inside and bless us this week, Lord. We give you thanks for this fantastic book we're going to go through in the next five weeks. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to get everything out of it that uh, you intend to have us get out of it. And Lord, we know Paul's up there with you and Timothy too, and I just pray that whatever we do down here with this book would uh, bring a smile to both their faces. And we pray a blessing on... Uh, these songs, which kind of reverberate in our minds for the next couple of days and uh, help us to help that to bring us back to your word. Keep us in your word all week long, Lord, as we continue to search the scriptures for the truth that you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Say the breezes and I are, and Wendy and I are going to be at, what's the name of the place? Board and Brew. So if anybody wants to join us there, I know that some of you guys do that from time to time. Matt, John. Willis's and some other, but you're all welcome. It'll be fun to see you guys there. We'll see you next week. First Timothy 2, and boy, is it controversial. So uh, we'll see you then.